I really didn't think oh, it'll be a business or anything. So I just literally started it for fun. It was kind of cathartic to share mine and people enjoyed sharing it. And if we can kind of use all of these voices of the women that have come to me to help get change for future women, then that would be the dream. So we're working on that at the moment as well. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Hello, lovely neighborhood, and happy International Women's Day. Of course, it should be International Women's Day every day, but I do love that there is a week of celebration set aside for women supporting women and lifting each other up. So I hope you guys are enjoying some of the celebrations. I must apologize for missing last week's scheduled Yays of Our Lives episode. You might have seen I ran into a little hiccup and had to squeeze in a last minute surgery, which was a bit of an ATA. So I've been taking it a little bit easier. But the wrap episode with Ange from our In Real Life events is still coming to you soon, I promise. In the meantime, I couldn't think of a better guest to celebrate all that is wonderful and womanly than the incredible Sophie Walker from Australian Birth Stories. I suspect that many of you listeners are also among the literal millions in the Australian Birth Stories community. But in case you aren't just yet, It is one of Australia's most successful shows, sharing honest stories of women navigating the journey to motherhood, a space where conversations, education and a safe space to share had long been missing. I always find it just so alarming how little women often understand about their bodies and cycles and how everything works. And Sophie herself was originally inspired to create her community by her second birth experience, during which she felt unable to make informed decisions and left with significant physical and emotional trauma, which she didn't end up experiencing by the time of her third birth. And she has since shared over 350 diverse stories of pregnancy, birth and postpartum covering every scenario you could think of, helping so many people feel more informed and empowered to have a positive birth experience. Once you dive into the wild world of childbirth, there is just so much to uncover and learn. My mind has been blown. It's so fascinating. It's almost like uh, we kind of want to pretend it's not going to happen until it's right on our doorstep. But being informed and educated is how you can have a really positive birthing experience. And there are 350 episodes and counting that you can tune into for more of those juicy details, as well as Sophie's brand new book, The Complete Australian Guide to Pregnancy and Birth, which you will also hear about in the episode. And even at our early stage of our journey, it's already been enormously helpful to me in navigating how much information there is to get through. Here, I wanted to focus more on who Sophie is and the the behind-the-scenes story that led her from a master's in public health with no background in media to one of Australia's most successful podcasts. So we'll focus a bit on the story, of course, cover some of the uh, scientific and juicier details around childbirth, but I really do hope you enjoy getting to know her a bit more as much as I did. 
Sophie, welcome to Seize the Yay. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is such an exciting moment. I have listened to your podcast for so long. I've just received your beautiful new book and have just followed what you do so closely. And it's yeah, been wonderful. I'm fangirling right now having you on the show. Oh, the feeling's mutual. I've listened to your podcast quite a lot and you've had some incredible guests, Gary V, and a few, yeah, through big names on there that I've enjoyed. So yeah, it's I've been watching you from the sidelines too. Oh, the mutual fangirling. <laughs> <laughs> it's also funny, I feel like on in podcast land, you when you listen to someone so much, you kind of feel like you know them and you know their personality. And I don't feel like this is the first time we've spoken because I'm like, oh, I hear so f- all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's, a, it's an unusual intimacy. Yeah. Intimacy. It's a good word. It's like they're there for you spilling your guts on your most vulnerable moments and all your feelings and thoughts. And then, yeah, it's beautiful to finally actually sit down with you and chat. And as your book has just come out, how exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a really big couple of years working hard, but you and I were just sharing offline that um, it's pretty incredible when you work so tirelessly on something and then you see it out in the wild. Yeah. It's so special. It's been a wild week. I can't even imagine. <laughs> so I'm very, very grateful for you making time. As I know, I'm sure your schedule is absolutely jam-packed at the moment. But I think one of the reasons I'm so, so excited to have you is so many people in your incredible, massive audience that you've grown and beautiful community would know so much about you, so much about your birth, so much about the way that you interview other people. But I feel like there's not a lot of material or information out there about who you are outside of pregnancy and birth, what you were doing before, all the stuff that I think I love that, you know, I love CZA because it gives me uh, a platform to remind people that if they met you now, you've got a book, you've got a course, you've got a huge podcast. It's easy to think you've got it made. You always knew this is where you'd end up. But I love reminding people, no, there was a whole life before this. There was a you in childhood who had different goals and dreams and, you know, things go in all different directions. So can you take us back to the very beginning to very young Sophie, even primary school, kind of what were your first things you loved doing, the first careers you thought you wanted and what you thought your future would look like? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually, from a really young age, thought maybe I would be a midwife or a nurse. So I was interested in that space, but then I never studied it. So it's an unusual kind of circle of how I got here, but there was kind of always an underlying interest. And ironically, I've, I've always struggled with my weight and things, so I've always been on the bigger side. And in high school, I wanted to do PE as like BCE. Really? Yeah, but I wanted to do it because I was interested in the anatomy and the physiology side of things. And I won't name drop my school, but they said, <laughs> oh, we don't think PE's for you like because <gasps> I wasn't enrolled in any sports or anything. And I feel like going back now, I should volunteer to go back and go, yes, well, I did. I wanted to do it as like an underlying subject for university and, and it probably would have shown me that I was really interested in this space and might have been different. I haven't really said that out loud before, but it's interesting. I do think of that of like, hmm, I wonder if that would have changed the course of things. But yeah, so I always interested in that medical space, but yeah, I didn't really pursue it. I don't know why I didn't try and enroll in that. When I finished school, I more or less did an arts degree or a teaching degree just because I wanted to go to Melbourne Uni with all my friends. <laughs> Not a good way of choosing a course. <laughs> or a great way of choosing your course. <laughs> yeah, well, socially it was good. So I studied primary teaching and um, I did that out of school and then I was like a bit bored with the course 
And I ended up doing adding on anthropology and a few in Indonesian, which I studied at school. So I tried to kind of expand that. Yeah, I came to where I am in a very strange fashion. Then I dropped out of uni. So I didn't finish my teaching degree and eventually went back and did a Bachelor of Health Science and international relations with the idea of perhaps working for an NGO like Oxfam and helping do kind of aid work overseas. That's where I I sort of came around to it eventually and I never really worked in that either. (laughs) (laughs) See, I find this part so fascinating. It seems to be, and of course, like understandably, it's the part that gets the least airtime in people's stories, but I feel like it's the part that people who haven't found their thing or their yay or their joy or their, their purpose just yet, it's the thing that's the most reassuring to be like, no, no, there was a Sophie who was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to choose just because my friends are there. Like, who am I? I don't know who I want to be. And it's interesting that now those dots kind of connect, like looking back at that common theme of anatomy and health and health sciences, but that it just doesn't always present itself in the way you expect straight away. Yeah. On the way forward, you have to trust that later looking backwards it will all make sense yeah and all the experiences you can draw on from all the different random jobs you've done I went to London and I thought oh maybe I can pick up some kind of work working for water aid or something and use my qualifications there but that was really hard and competitive to land and I did do a bit of volunteer work at MSF medicines and Doctors Without Borders, amazing. Yeah, I got my toe in the water there, but then we ended up sort of just travelling and coming back and I I came back from our sort of two and a half years in London thinking I think I need to extend my studies. So that's when I did a Master's in Public Health and really kind of got right into women's health. Right. So between finishing school and then starting that Master's, did you have what you would have said at the time is your career path? Like were you aiming for something in particular, or you were still just kind of trying to work out what your skills could look like in the workforce somehow? I think still just exploring things. I love studying. And then people saying, you should do a PhD now with all this kind of birth work. And I was like, should I? No, I'm still paying (laughs) off all these other random courses that I've done. (laughs) And masters aren't cheap. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah, but I just really enjoyed the learning and really just expanding my mind and things. And even after my master's, I wasn't certain, okay, this is what I want to do. And I applied for a real mixed variety of jobs and ended up working in cancer research, so women's health and cancer and, um, yeah, following longitudinal studies with breast cancer and families with BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. So, yeah, so I kind of got more research experience then of interviewing people and, and all those skills I think have kind of really helped in the podcast, which I never kind of had visioned. It wasn't part of the manifestation. The plan, <laughs> the vision board. No, no, it wasn't on there. <laughs> but that's what I love as well because I think you often lament, you know, if you haven't found a clear pathway by a certain age, we often sort of think, oh, well, all that was a waste of time because it didn't lead me to X or it didn't, I didn't become blah. But I think actually if you learn something, nothing's ever a waste. It will always translate in a way, perhaps not the way you thought, but it turns out that podcasting, all of those skills have been relevant to you and research and understanding women's health and having a background knowledge in science. So when was it that you actually thought, I have absolutely no idea what podcasting is? I know back in 2017 when you started, I think I started maybe a year after you and it was still very primitive and a very different environment like it was kind of like am radio we were all like what like yeah what what is that (laughs) so how did that that come into your mind as like a, a, a forum I was working at that stage at the Cancer Council and I'd had my first 
So I've got three boys and I'd had two boys and then I went back to work part-time and I was doing yeah cancer research again and we were doing a lot of packing envelopes and things and I had a good girlfriend and we used to chat about podcasts we were listening to and she was Canadian so she listened to a lot of kind of Canadian and American ones and I was listening to a lot of American ones and she was like, you should make your own one because you love listening to birth-related ones. Why don't you make your own? And we sort of joked, oh, imagine if one day people are sending you prams and you'll be like one of those birth influencers. <laughs> so now it's when you. things happen, I'll message her. I'm like, yes, it's here. The pram literally came. <laughs> but it, it has yes. arrived. <laughs> I just followed, uh, yeah, as you said, there was like not much going on. Now I feel like there's so many courses on how to start a podcast, but I just followed a YouTube video free one on like do this then do this and I'm not techie it's still not techie and I just followed the steps and set it up and yeah mum listened and my sister listened she's the second guest and then I just badgered friends to come on like quick share your birth story I know it's important (laughs) to keep the momentum up I can't like miss a week even though no one was listening I was like, that's like rule number six in the steps. So in my free video that I watched on YouTube, that's step six. (laughs) And even then I thought, well, this is fun. I really didn't think it'll be a business or anything. So I just literally started it for fun. It was kind of cathartic to share mine and people enjoyed sharing it. And then I thought, okay, I need to get a little bit strategic to get more listeners. So I then I asked people that I followed on Instagram that were kind of in the motherhood space and were had a bit of a bigger following. And when they they all just said yes, everyone was keen to share. And um, I was a nobody, and they just obviously thought, oh, that's a nice idea. I'll do that. And then they would share it on their platforms and say, oh, they did my podcast. And that's how I really grew quickly because I'd sort of gained all of their followers who were curious about the backstory mm. of their birth. Instagram was really easy to use back there. If you had a follower, they saw what you posted. There was oh. no tricks or algorithms. Remember those days. <laughs> Remember the those glory days. days. Oh, I miss those days. <laughs> I know. Simpler times. <laughs> now you have to dance and point to get anyone's attention. <laughs> oh, the hoops you have to jump through these days. I know. <laughs> but I also love that. But that's how it grew so quickly, really. I heard you on, uh, I can't remember, I think it was... I mean, now it's still an older episode compared to how far you've come now, but it was, I think, the episode where you talk about Otty's birth, your third son, and it was you saying, oh, I'm here to talk about Otty. I don't want to go back and listen to episode one of me talking about one of my other births because I would cringe too much if I went back to listen to episode one. But I always say if you don't cringe at your first product, then you're not doing it right. Like you're meant to kind of grow so much that very quickly – you look back and go, ew, that's awful. But that's kind of, it means you've come a really long way. (laughs) Yeah. You probably feel as well, people say, I've listened to every episode and I'm like, oh, not the early ones. (laughs) Oh, and I'm like the audio quality, but I also can't bring myself to go back and fix them either because I'm like, I just don't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what's quite similar in our journeys with our podcast is that sometimes it's better that you don't plan it to become a business or to become this huge community because then it's not as scary. Then you just do things intuitively. You make decisions based on this episode needs to be good. Then episode two needs to be good. It's not like, what am I going to do at episode 200? I need a studio. I need all these things. I sometimes think it's, I often use that quote, you don't have to see the whole staircase. In fact, you could never have predicted the staircase you've climbed and are at the top of now, but you just have to do the first step. You just do one episode, then two. Is that kind of how you approached it mentally as well? 
Yeah, and then the time commitment at that stage too was just like, okay, it takes an hour to record. Back then it probably took me an hour to edit and put together and it was two hours out of my week and then it was done and dusted, which is funny now I think about, I think fondly back to those times because I work (laughs) full-time now and I'm like, oh, remember when it used to just be a two-hour commitment? Now it's busy in a good way but just very different yeah, how things change and the pressures and the commitments you've got to, you've got staff and then I've got sponsors and things like that. So you can't just kind of casually take a week off if you're not in the mood. Yeah. Things have to continue. People start badgering you like, what happened? Where's It's two o'clock on Monday and normally I've listened. Rude. Yeah, so rude. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm so excited to get into more of the actual content of the podcast, your births, the book that's coming out and how it all ties together. But just quickly before we do that, a big thing we talk about on Seize the A is that it's particularly at the beginning of an idea how much self-doubt and comparison and fear can stop you even starting or once you start can really hamper or hinder your ability to push it forward and allow you know your idea to blossom into what obviously you've seen it, it, it able to become. How did that play for you at the beginning? Like you were putting yourself out there in an industry where no one was really doing it. People didn't really understand what podcasting was. It's also a subject matter that's quite vulnerable and and back then much more stigmatized. It's even now hard to get those conversations going, which is why you've done so well, because we're all so desperate for information. But back then were you sort of like, people are going to judge me? Like, ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I just approached like the first lot of brands and when I reached out and then they weren't familiar with podcasting, which is totally different to nowadays. I feel like most brands are really like use that as it's one of their pillars of their marketing. But back then I'm like, have to kind of break it down. This is what a podcast is and this is how they (laughs) listen. And what you need to do is give me a code and I'll put the code in the ad and then hopefully they'll use the code to buy. Like I felt like I was really breaking it down. And it's funny because a lot of those brands who initially I said, oh, just for $80, do you want to have a 60? second ad and then um and now they're paying a lot more and they're still with me over sort of six years so it proved itself and I think I kept the price barrier really low so it was an experiment for us both Mm. but I think you hear about people kind of just having a business idea and kind of dropping everything and jumping in there seems to be sort of two schools of people I feel like there's people that just go I'm 100% invested I'm going to take a leap of faith and hopefully it works Whereas I decided to wait till the podcast was making the same revenue I was making at my part-time job and I was sort of doing podcast stuff in my lunch breaks and because I interviewed people for work, I was in soundproof rooms and I was like, hmm, could I do an interview in my lunch break in like room three if I rent it out? And then I thought, I think I'm too distracted. That's so clever. <laughs> no, I, would, I still would yeah. like access to those rooms. but. Yeah, no, I got to a point where I thought it's less of a risk. And I also, my husband was working full time, so we relied mostly on his income. So it wasn't kind of too stressful in that sense. And I thought worst case scenario, if it doesn't work out or I don't enjoy it, then I'll just pick up a part-time job again. Yeah, so it didn't feel too scary and overwhelming. But then because I realized, oh, I've got more time to kind of do online courses and invest and really think about how to grow the business, then having that extra time just meant it kind of, yeah, it really sort of snowballed into something bigger quite quickly. Yeah, I love that, dividing those two schools of thought because I I talk about that often and I think I started in the first school of like, rip the Band-Aid, like you're never going to know if you don't try. But then I realised in hindsight I I actually was in the second camp the same as you, like keep both going as long as you can because the more you're, you're making the jump smaller and smaller and managing the risk more and more as time goes on. So it's it's much 
easier to make a jump to something that's already proven itself than it is to just go blindly, even though both have their place in different scenarios. Both but are I, valid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just depends on your personality type and, and your, whether you got a mortgage, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what the other person's income is doing. There's so many factors. Yeah. Very personalized. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so one of the underlying things that I've heard you talk about, particularly now with the release of the book, but also in starting the podcast is the fact that, you know, here in Australia, a baby is born every minute and 45 seconds, but one in three women come away from their birth experience feeling traumatized, which is quite a an alarming statistic. And, and the common theme in your over 300 episodes now is always people saying in relation to their first birth, no one tells you, I didn't know this. No one tells you this is going to happen. No one's heard of a TENS machine. No one knows about like the shakes or you, these fundamentally basic things that any other mother could pass on to you. There's never been a hub to learn about that. And that is what you've so beautifully created. So can you talk to us about how your experiences being different with your three births and then now 300 plus women sharing their experiences, like how Australian Birth Stories has become this hub for that and why you think it's so important? Yeah, I think I would definitely consider myself that one in three in my first birth experience as well. So that that labour in a nutshell was sort of 36 hours and at about 30 <laughs> hours in, yeah, I was like, oh, well, I've tried all the things that I'd planned to try and I went in really confident, like ready for the challenge and then I got stuck at five centimetres, let's say stuck in inverted commas, but I didn't progress past five centimetres after labouring for so long. I was like, oh, well. I've done everything. I don't care anymore. I'm not I'm not interested in this. <laughs> Somebody get this baby out. <laughs> I'm done, basically, guys. Wrap yep. it up now. <laughs> Tapping it. I'll have the epidural and then you guys sort it out. That's kind of how I felt in that moment. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> My lovely husband was like, are you sure? Remember you said like you don't really want to have the epidural? I was like, get mum. Mum, I definitely want the epidural. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so after that experience, I kind of, I definitely wanted more children and I wanted to birth again but I thought all right something was missing or something went wrong for me in that first birth what can I do to make things easier or to make myself feel more confident going into this second one and the big difference for me is I did just binge and consume as many birth stories as I could and I really think that I got an understanding of what Rhea Dempsey's lovely doula and birth worker and she's an author of several books um, she talks about it as a crisis of confidence that you naturally get to a point in labor where you think I cannot do this and it's usually kind of around transition so like most things in life there's a mental component you have to have tools in your mental kit ready to go for when that moment arises and I feel like I didn't have those in my first birth I was like oh well I wanted a drug-free birth and it's not working out so I haven't got any other plan whereas I went into the second thinking okay if it gets to a point where I do feel like I want an epidural then I want to try and use the peanut ball and I want to try and stay as mobile and I want to have like the lowest dose of the epidural and I had a better understanding of all the options so that I could make a better informed choice going in and thankfully that baby Louis was um a kilo smaller than my first. My first was 4.4 <laughs> kilos, so he was Ooh. a unit. <laughs> so I think he was a smaller baby and I'd birthed before and I was also just really relaxed. And I'd also learned a lot more about the physiology of birth and rather than resisting the contractions, I moved into them and I kind of went with the birth process, which I think was quite different to the first time. And um, his labour was five hours and I didn't need any assistance in that birth and it was pretty dreamy. He was my best birth. 
yeah, so I felt really inspired by that and I really felt like education and listening to stories was the main difference that really empowered me for that experience. So I thought if I can do that just for one woman, then that would be amazing. So that's kind of how it all came to be. And I mean, yeah, those numbers haven't changed for a long time, one in three. So there's over 300,000 births in Australia each year. And I'm definitely not reaching all of those women with the podcast, but that would be the dream. Close, and I know close you're, though. <laughs> I know there's people like yourself who said, I'm listening now and I know you're not pregnant and you're just preparing yourself and the dream is that people will listen prior to conceiving and really have a much greater understanding of the birth process and then have hopefully have much better outcomes. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> she's going to kill me for saying this, but a good friend of the podcast Shout out to Lauren Harney, who's one of our dear friends, has been listening to your show since I think she was a teenager when she first started. She's fascinated with birth stories. She's always been obsessed with everything, fertility, conception, childbirth. Like she sent me when I first started listening, which was ages ago when we were first even thinking about coming off the pill, she made me a playlist of your show, <laughs> of top, episodes oh, to I'd watch like to the top in order. Yeah, <laughs> I'll send them to you. And then uh, I was with her on the weekend and she grabbed the book off me and was like, no, I want to read it. She's off in a corner. So she's your biggest <laughs> fan. And she, like uh-huh. a decade before she's even thought about conception and, and fertility and children, she was already a massive, massive fan. And I think a lot of the millions and millions of downloads are probably all her from her IP address, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but I'd be interested to know... What's beautiful about the show is that you have covered, you know, you and your sister and people in your network. And then on the other end of the spectrum, a lot of really well-known names who haven't had a forum. Like I know Rosalia, Steph Smith, they're friends of ours and they've never had anywhere to put that information or those conversations and we've never had anywhere to listen to them. But you also cover the whole spectrum from home births to hospital births to induction to IVF to same-sex couples. Like you've covered so much For you, do you have like a, this is the gateway drug to Australian birth stories. These are the first three or four or five episodes or your favorites that you're most proud of. Are there any that stand out to you a lot? Yeah, I do. It's a bit like children though. You can't kind of have your favorite. (laughs) Like there's, there's so many great episodes. I do often recommend if people are just choosing one to begin with to listen to Jodie's, which is episode 105. And she's the co-author of the book, but she's, she gives her her four birth stories and um, she's also her background she's a yoga teacher and she demonstrates kind of breathing and exercises in how she used her body in her births and I think people kind of come away feeling really inspired and and with tangible tools to use in their in their birth so I know that one gets a lot of playing I mean I love people to listen to all the episodes but we did decide to make a blog just of like five positive birth experiences to kind of get you to start you off and then I encourage everyone to listen to all the different stories so they get like a really good picture of all the different things that can unfold and I should also say like I don't think that education and listening to birth stories is the answer to reducing birth trauma I think it's a contributing factor but I mean there's a lot of systemic change that needs to happen in like access to care and the way that the hospitals run and so I'm not naive to think you know just listen to these birth stories and we'll all have a perfect birth there's a lot of different components but I think it can have a really big difference 
Definitely even just exposure to the terminology and options, I think, is that's a huge starting point that a lot of people would go in blind, not even knowing what to research. And also the different options that you have, I think, even in the first couple of episodes I'd listened to, I was like, oh, wow, I kind of understand the structure of birthing a little bit more. I read somewhere that you have like a waiting list of like 5,000 women or something like that. Yeah, it's probably more than that now. Yeah, that's insane. (laughs) How do you choose? Is it you know, that there are birth scenarios you haven't covered and you'd like to fill that gap? Is it because you haven't done a same-sex couple in a couple of episodes and you want to? Like how do you kind of balance out the coverage and also the coverage between positive and challenging because that's a hard part of education as well? Yeah, there's so many things when I'm drawing it out. And yeah, as you say, there's no shortage of content. So I all the applications go into a spreadsheet and then I'm able to then break it down of like, I can literally think, okay, we need to do a rural woman who's had a VBAC, who has an Asian background, who, you know, and then I can find that, like I can categorize and find something relevant. And I used to find that stuff hard initially because I was like, well, I feel like all women are the same and we're all birthing and things like that. But race has been a new kind of component for me to look at. And that's probably came around more so in like Black Lives Matter and things like that. And I thought, what am I doing in my business that could be seen to be discriminating? And I wasn't even asking on those forms. So I think about or two thirds of the people in that list, I don't know their background. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, well, because it didn't feel relevant to me. And yeah, I mean, my husband's Fijian and he's, so he's dark and my kids are dark and things like that. And I, I kind of think, well, how does that influence the birth space? And aren't we all just birthing women? But I've come to really acknowledge that that's not the case. And if you don't see yourself in social media and in the stories and stuff, then you don't feel a sense of belonging. And there's also a lot of I mean, there's cultural differences and practices we can all learn from, but there's also discrimination and we need to kind of acknowledge that happens in the birth space as well. So I've learned to kind of then incorporate that as another element. So I feel like there's about six things I look for when I'm trying to balance out the stories and um, Jody reads all the episodes and writes the show notes and so she's often oh, like, you know wow. what we haven't done for a while? We need to do an IVF with a such and such with a such. It's like a shopping list. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we try and find the most appropriate story. And then I'm also just sent DMs like all throughout the day and people tell me interesting stories and send me pictures and I'm like, oh, I just want to know I the story. So sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm like, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> so it's a little bit of that involved too and now my DMs are probably going to be full. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, if you want me to cut that out later, you can totally tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. Like, So I don't get bored of it. So I'm still hungry to hear all the stories. It's so, I mean, even in your own three birth stories, you can see that there's just no common theme or similar experience or ability to predict. So I can imagine you'd never get bored because the stories would change so much. I noticed there's also a really beautiful section on birthing on country. Like you've acknowledged the sort of different experiences and different circumstances that people give birth in, which either because people get to see themselves reflected in your content, that's beautiful, but also so people who aren't from those minorities or groups can understand and learn more about the way that different people birth different trends and cultures and practices. I think that's also really beautiful. Is there any dream guest like in the universe that if you could have them tell their birth story, you'd want to know? I always thought it'd be fun to do Jacinta Ardern and then talk about how she like worked and had her baby. (laughs) But I feel like she'd probably keep that private because her whole life was under the spotlight. 
but I'm curious for that one. And I also, um, now I'm not going to remember her name, I think it's Yana, the actress, Australian actress who's in The Handmaid's Tale because she was <gasps> pregnant while filming and I thought, well, that would have been such a mind trick to be and I just on that show on of all name. shows. Yeah. So I was curious. But I did used to always think, oh, wouldn't it be great to have Zoe Foster Blake? And I have had the privilege of interviewing <laughs> Zoe. So that was nice. <laughs> You're like, I've already kicked all my goals. What do I do now? <laughs> yeah. But then, and, and in all honesty, a lot of the just everyday people with no following have the, these incredible tales. And some people just have a real gift of telling it as well. So sometimes I start an interview with someone I know nothing about and I think, oh, this is going to be a really good one. So um, yeah, that's wow. nice as well. My personal request, if you can ever make it happen, is a royal because we'll never know. I'm, I'm sure they'll never say yes because they're not allowed to, but I would just love just the, to know the protocol around like who's allowed in there, like just especially if they're in line for the throw. Like I feel like all of that stuff is not documented <laughs> yeah. anywhere and it would be so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I'll put it on the list. Yeah, <laughs> just flicker a little DM and be like, hey, I've got okay. this amazing show. <laughs> My friend would really like to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spoonful of Sarah has personally requested this. <laughs> yeah, see what you can do. All right, I'll see. <laughs> what about the juice? What are some of the wildest trends or uh, devices or scenarios that you've had or learnings that you've had that might surprise people who haven't given birth or who have given birth or like I know you did hypnobirthing, like there are trends. Home birthing I think is becoming a lot more common, like there are trends and fashions also that are sort of happening in the birth space. I think there's things that come and go. And when I started the podcast, I feel like doulas and things were still very much on the fringe and it was kind of like, oh, if you're alternative and you're having a home birth, you might have a doula. Yeah, if you're a hippie, you'll have a doula. <laughs> yeah, but now they're very much mainstream and there's a much stronger understanding of what they can offer and a lot of doulas attend hospital births and it's definitely not just um, kind of niche down and I think they're bridging a huge gap as well in the continuity of care if you can't get a known care provider throughout and you would like one then doulas can really bridge that gap and postpartum doulas as well has become a lot more just commonplace I think people are acknowledging that you do need a lot of support physically and emotionally and with cooking and things like that. And that, and so it's nice to see those things embraced. And I feel like the postpartum doula is, is really a nod to that confinement period and that we've shared quite a bit on the show as well. And it's kind of, yeah, acknowledging how important and, yeah, what a great practice that is. But I think things like initially my first birth, I did placenta encapsulation and I feel like that kind of ebbs and flows. People like right into it or not doing it anymore. And yeah, so, and I had them encapsulated, but people have placenta smoothies and just consume it. Wait, can you first explain to people? Because again, I feel like I came out of year 12 thinking, A, if I sat on a toilet seat that a boy had sat on, I could get pregnant any time of the year, 365 days of the year. B, didn't know that my cycle had four phases and C, had like thought the babies came out like they did in the movies. Like I just don't think we're taught enough about <laughs> who even knew you had to birth a placenta separately. Like what does that even mean? I know. I feel like you often forget that even when you know and you're birthing and then you're like, <laughs> oh, I've got to do the placenta now, <laughs> which is usually much easier. 
Yeah, so you have to birth it separately, right? Yeah, so you still, so the baby comes out and then you have more contractions ideally and then the placenta is born. And there's two ways of doing that. You can wait for that to come out naturally and for your body to, so it's attached to the uterus and it kind of comes away in the birth process, all things going well, and then you birth that as well. And then that's attached to the umbilical cord and then you cut the cord or you do what you're going to do there, Oh, which is another thing. There's a few different ways of cutting the cord and how long you wait and whether you, but the, with the placenta, Placenta is basically you birth the placenta, which has been um, filtering and giving the baby nutrients. And some people believe that if you consume that placenta as the mother, then you're gaining those nutrients and iron and different minerals because other animals eat their placenta. But it's still not, um, I'm not sure what the numbers would be, but it's still not commonplace. But you can either have it kind of dried by a professional who knows how to keep it not contaminated. <laughs> Yeah, it's not just your husband in the backyard, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yep. got to. Yeah, you know, the last thing you want is kind of blood poisoning when you're breastfeeding and taking care of yourself. So it needs to be done by a certified person who knows what they're doing, and then they freeze dry it and put it into capsules. Or some people elect to consume it raw. If you've had a home birth, you can just kind of consume it raw in a smoothie. I've no idea what that would taste like. I haven't Whoa. done it myself. I think for Louis, you did the delayed where you wait as long as you can? Yeah, so it's delayed cord clamping, but it's actually now reframed. Like The terminology changes a lot. They call it optimal cord clamping, and most hospitals just do that as commonplace now, where you let the blood move from the placenta into the baby because if you cut it too soon, then the blood's left behind in the placenta and and Mm -hmm. that iron-rich kind of important blood needs to go into the baby. But there's other ways of cutting the cord too. I cut my own cord, which I think is pretty cool. I was like, wow. yeah, I've done all this work. I'm going to cut it myself. Yeah, screw you. It's my turn. <laughs> my, my husband didn't really care. So that was funny. But some people also burn the cord in like almost in a ceremony and use because it's like there's no nerve fibers or anything in it. So, yeah, they burn it to separate it from the placenta and the baby with like candle and make a bit of a ritual out of it. So there's a few different things you can do there too. Wow. Oh my gosh, there's just so many different options and it's so overwhelming. And I think what the most beautiful thing is about the book is that it distills everything that you could glean from the podcast into like chronological order in a really concise, (laughs) easy, accessible way. Like, obviously, I love listening to the podcast, but, I, you know, a newcomer, I'd be like, can you please listen to episode one, two, 350 right now in order? But if you are, you know, if you've just conceived or you've you've just found out, I love that it's just so well ordered. It's all of this information, all of the options, all of the decisions you have to make, like very quickly. It's like, do you want to go private or public? Do you want to have a doula or an OB? Do you want to go to a birthing center or a hospital? There's, do you want to birth in a pool or like there's just so many options and you walk everyone through those in such a clear and less overwhelming way. So is that how the book idea came up that you were distilling so much information and thought, Everyone asked me what five episodes I should listen to. What if I just gave you like a written form? Yeah, well, sort of, and then sort of not. In in the same way that my business is always a bit backward in coming forward, I was approached by a book publisher saying, have you thought about doing a book? And I was like, no, I have not thought about doing a book. <laughs> 
that was during COVID. I was like, oh, the last thing I need to add to the mix is like within with homeschooling and toilet training is writing a book. And so then a bit of time passed and then Jodie, who I ended up co-writing with, wrote her own book on a totally different topic and then said, you should approach Murdoch, which I know is your publisher as well, and talk to them about it because um, I really think we should do it. Um, And then we all had a few kind of conference calls and talked about, you know, what is currently available and, and people were often asking me on the podcast and in DMs and things like, what book should I read? And there are some good books out there, but it felt very much they're skewed to one style of birthing or they're skewed Mm. to one particular. So there's a lot of home birth books or there's a lot of books on being really active in birth, but there's not a book, an Australian book that kind of covers all of those things and is welcoming to all types of births, as you say. So we wanted someone who knows they want a cesarean to be able to pick up the book and still feel welcome and feel like that this book is also for them. So we wanted it to be really complete and holistic. And, yeah, we were able to kind of nut that out with the team at Murdoch and we spent two years writing it. So (gasps) they sort of initially said, I don't know what the common kind of writing period is for books, but they said, could you kind of have it ready by such and such a date, which would have allowed us six months? And we said, absolutely not. Like this is a really big undertaking. And we don't pretend to be medical professionals either. We're, you know, mothers but and have worked in the healthcare space and Jodie's taught birth education, but we didn't want to pretend to be obstetricians and midwives. So it was really important for us to go out and speak to all these perinatal health specialists and add their insight into the book. And then there was a five-month editing process where we took it to midwives and obstetricians to read as a complete manuscript. Yeah, because we didn't want to be giving kind of inappropriate advice. We really wanted it to be medically endorsed. So, and we've had two of our favourites endorse it, both a beautiful midwife, Hannah Darlin, and um, obstetrician, Dr. Lionel uh, Steinberg, who's affectionately known in Melbourne as Vaginal Lionel. What a name. Wow. I know. <laughs> that should have been his nickname. I know, on the cover. Well, people say because he's really like pro-vaginal birth. And it's like, I don't know if you can be pro-vaginal birth, but um, he's an obstetrician who has perhaps less interventions. Yeah. <laughs> How did you decide to balance? Because I think you're very good at like sharing your own birth stories and what your preferences were, like less interventions if possible, obviously subject to if things go wrong and it's necessary. How do you balance covering topics that might be a little bit more fringe or a little bit less common, but if it's something that you're not necessarily against but not particularly for and choosing to put that on the platform or not? Is that hard? Yeah. Well, I've chosen to not share free births and that's where somebody births without a care provider at all, knowingly. I think that's been around for a long time and people will argue that's how people birthed initially. But I don't want to, with my public health background and a sense of responsibility, I don't want to be encouraging anybody to birth without a known care provider because, I mean, feel like nearly everywhere in Australia, you've got access to somebody through the public system as well. Maybe it's not exactly what you had in mind, but I just think it's an unnecessary risk. So I don't want to promote that. 
So I've chosen to do that. And I have chosen throughout COVID to, I'm fully vaccinated and I kept promoting information, not promoting that people vaccinate, but promoting the sources where this is where you should go to hear the experts discuss it so you can make an informed decision. And I feel like that is like the crux of all my work. If you know all the things, then you can make an informed choice. I'm not going to tell you, you should have a home birth or you should go and get vaccinated, but I am happy to say, here's all the kind of vetted experts that have really done the research and you should hear it from them and then make your own decision. So Mm. I guess that's the main thing. There's been a couple of episodes where I have, there's two episodes that I've removed for various reasons. And one was a a midwife who was deregistered and I recorded the episode. Nothing kind of contentious happened in her particular episode, but other people reached out to me because I have a big community of student midwives and midwives that listen to kind of gain more experience. And they said, you know, we don't think it's safe that that woman is mentioned by name and her services are promoted because she was deregistered for a variety of reasons. And so I decided to pull that episode down too. So I've got a real sense of duty of care to Mm. everybody who's listening as well. So that's another kind of contributing factor when I'm collating all all the stories. I think that really shines through, but I also often am like, wow, I don't envy the the decision-making process for you of going for maximum information sharing of all the options, but also the responsibility on you to to kind of be a gatekeeper of that information in a particular way. And I guess the really difficult stories, I have a trigger warning, although yeah. I find that the term people have thoughts on the term trigger too. It kind of devalues those experiences for other people. But I definitely say up front, this episode talks about baby loss or this episode, we really discuss miscarriage. So if you don't feel ready to listen to that, then perhaps stop listening now. So I don't want people to kind of, yeah, for it to bring up their previous trauma if they haven't kind of consciously made the choice to listen. Yeah, I think you can't control when an episode is going to find someone either or what stage it finds them in. So I think I know it's so hard to if you don't want to use the word, but I think that does give them a choice at least to opt out before they're thrown into a conversation they're not ready for. In writing the book, was that I mean, you've obviously learned so much from so many different stories in so many different areas. Is there anything in the book, statistics or facts or things that still fascinate you about birth and pregnancy and motherhood that to the total newbie to the area, if you wanted to just impress upon them like some cool stuff, what would they be? That's such a hard question, I know. <laughs> but like, but if there were like some clickbaity things that you're just like, this is interesting because this. There's some really interesting things that um, I should have like perhaps done a bit of research on this, but um, I'm not going to remember it exactly. But there is a thing when you have a cesarean birth the cells from the baby become intertwined in the scar tissue. So I'm not going to articulate that very well, but it's like they're always physically, I mean, every birth is physically always with you, but that actually components of that baby stay within the scar. And if you've had a, a loss, you'll always carry components of the DNA of that baby as well. So it's like, it's lovely. There's a, I should have found the quote, but there's a succinct way of saying that. <laughs> No, that's fascinating. See, I've got experts to critique it in the book. But, yeah, there's elements of like even if you have lost a baby, they'll always physically be within you. But there's also components of when the baby is born through a cesarean, there's like elements of them that help the scar to heal. Like, it's yeah, it's pretty amazing, very kind of primal. Even labour itself, it's just outrageous how there's like vaginal breech birth, vaginal normal birth, cesarean, like 
Oh my God. Just the steps. Like women just, whoa, so much information and you've really distilled it in such a easy to digest way. Even like, you know, breastfeeding and formula. Oh, there's just so much information. Is there anything else that you still get astounded by or surprised by or maybe the better way to approach it is are there the questions you, that you get asked the most about childbirth? Yeah, I I get asked of so many questions. Uh, people often ask me as well, which I find is a unusual it feels unusual to me being a mother of three, but they say, you know, how do you know when you're ready? And I, and my gut response to that is if you're asking me that, then you're not ready. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so consuming in every way for the rest of your life. I feel like you really need to be ready and know that you're ready and have those conversations with yourself if you're doing it solo or your partner. And I think another question people often ask me too is how do you know when you're done? And I thought, oh, oh. I mean, like you don't want any more children by choice. And I thought, oh, I think I'll never feel done because I just love babies and birth so much. But then I think like when Otty hit like 18 months or two, I was like, oh, 100% done. So maybe it does happen. <laughs> there's no, <laughs> there's absolutely no way I would have another child. And my father-in-law was visiting the other day and he said, wouldn't it be nice to have a girl? And I said, no, not happening. I'm close so, to business. <laughs> um, exactly. And I'm 42 now. So I just feel like, oh, uh, no, it feels too much for my body. I know people still birth at this age, but I just feel like, no, for me, I'm finished. Yeah. But I get to ask questions like that all the time, sort of and again, really intimate questions. And my publicist has been working in my LinkedIn account lately. And she said, oh, I can't believe like people just kind of say, hi, Sophie, and then tell you their whole birth story yeah. and <laughs> or suddenly talk about their prolapse or just like, they're just right in there. There's no like, isn't a lovely day today. And I said, yeah, that's how my work is. People are just like, very, very open. So yeah, it's an interesting space to work in. One thing that always comes to mind with me is like, I think you said it in your episode with Otty, maybe just how you sort of spend a lot of the pregnancy. Actually, it was in Rosalia's episode where you spend a lot of time being like, oh my God, I'm pregnant. This is so beautiful. And then, you know, in the second trimester, a lot of the symptoms calm down. So then you really enjoy it. And then in third trimester, people are just like, shit, I have to get this baby out. Like I act like you know, but you don't actually think about it until the third trimester. It has to come out somehow. And that's one of the scariest things, thinking about, oh, my God, like I actually have to do the most painful thing I've ever done in my life. But women keep going back. So I heard that there's like a something in your brain that makes you forget the trauma so that you can do it again. Like, is it as bad? Because even in your sister's episode, she's like, it's the worst pain I've ever felt in my life, like the worst. And I was like, oh, my God, but how did you do it again then? <laughs> like. I don't think you forget if you've had a traumatic birth I think that stays with you but there is something I think personally I would say and I think it is to help you go back and have more there is something to do with the pain threshold of forgetting that pain but I think when you have the first contraction of the subsequent birth you're like oh god I remember <laughs> oh no oh no <laughs> I mean I can't say I've had painless births but like Louis's birth really felt like I think it was a reframing of the pain as well. And I know like a lot of courses don't like to use the word pain and it's like a surge and it is like a true contraction feels like a wave moving up your body and you feel it come up and hit a peak and then come down. And um, I felt like I had a better, perhaps not so much in my third birth, ironically, but in my second birth, I really thought about that and I thought, okay, this is what's happening physiologically in my body to bring the baby down and it's not a negative pain it's a productive pain that's opening up things that's stretching the tissues and things and then you don't tend to kind of clench against it you kind of go okay I'm opening up 
and it feels really intense, the opening, and then I think that really helps. Yeah, and you mentioned that yoga for both you and your sister really helped and there's a lot of actual statistics around preparing your body through prenatal yoga in the third trimester, I think it was, changing the way that the birth can happen. Yeah, and I think it just really stretches, helps you stretch all those ligaments. But I think mindset is also so important and a lot of beautiful pregnancy yoga classes and regular yoga classes use kind of meditation and connecting with your body and you really need to form that connection with your body in pregnancy and birth so that you can kind of read each other. I mean, yeah, that sounds a bit weird when you say it like that, but you have, yeah, having an understanding. And I think uh, particularly in subsequent births, it's really nice to go to prenatal yoga and just connect with that baby if you've got a lot of hustle and bustle at home or even if it's your first, kind of coming out of your work mode and going in and really centering yourself on your body and thinking about where the baby is and what's to come. And I think all of that paves really well for your birth preparation. So I highly recommend it. And Pilates, I did a lot of Pilates as well. Oh, oh well, in terms of the nitty-gritty of actually preparing for birth and then the process and the many, many different options, the book is just such an invaluable and thorough and easy-to-read to guide. So I highly recommend everyone have a read and I'll include, of course, all the links in the show notes, but even just have a listen to the episodes. It opens your mind so much. And now having spoken to you a bit more about how the podcast developed, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this question, but now you've got a guide the show, a book, do you have a vision for the Australian Birth Stories community in like a couple of years' time? Do you have a big dream or are you just kind of similar to to now, just see how it goes, go with the flow? No, we're a bit more planned out. I think I we're currently working on doing B Corp certification this year <gasps> to kind of really, so Amazing. that's a big project. And then we're also working, because I've got such rich, beautiful data and stories from all these women, I really want to try and use that for greater good. So we're trying to, well, we're in the process of organising an annual study where um, people will answer a questionnaire so that we can get the kind of, again, we're coming back full circle around to my degree and getting kind of good quality statistics to help advocate for better kind of funding and better resources and to get what we know women need, which is continuity of care and having options and choices in childbirth and in their pre and postpartum care. And if we can kind of use all of these voices of the women that have come to me to help get change for future women, then that would be the dream. So we're working on that at the moment as well. Oh, how incredible, which also then makes the second question that I have for you now, like also a bit of a hard one to answer. But I think one of the things that I try and remember on in my life and on the show is that even if you love what you do, and particularly if you're seeing an impact outside of your world for other people that's incredibly positive, it's so important to have something that's separate to that subject matter so that your brain can rest, so that you can stay creative and stay fresh and also just have some downtime. Do you do anything for fun or for play that's not birth stories related, that's not like motherhood and children and like is there any guilty pleasures that you have that's just for joy? Oh, I watch a lot of Netflix. Oh, yes. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I think I have actually have. I say Netflix, but I've got every streaming service. Yeah, I know. So it's like I a catch-all. <laughs> what do you watch? Don't tell me Call the Midwife, even though I love that show. No, I don't watch birth-related ones. Yeah, no, good. I oh, 
I love like White Lotus and all of those kind of ones and like the mysterious ones. Yeah, but such a mixed bag and some embarrassing ones like All American and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, nice. Sometimes I love this. Sometimes I just want to watch stuff to just totally switch off. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm not into like reality television but just like pretty much everything else. But I also do, I, I really enjoy doing Pilates even though that's kind of part of my rehab from my first birth but um, I do really enjoy that and I enjoy getting to the studio and doing it. I've hired one but it's not quite the same as doing it at home. So I enjoy being in that environment with other women and doing the class but but it's definitely something I need to work on for this year because I've definitely not that there is a balance in work life but I feel like I've really turned the scales a bit doing the book and doing all the book promo and stuff and so I look forward to kind of incorporating a bit more fun in this year oh good that's wonderful to hear (laughs) second last question particularly because I'm sure a lot of the questions you cover in most interviews are about birth what are three interesting things about you unrelated to any of that that don't normally come up in conversation oh I should have thought about these (laughs) (laughs) I can sing people probably don't know that and I've got a cold at the moment but I can sing Um, yeah I was in the choir and things at school (laughs) See, I'm like, this is the Sophie Walker behind the show. (laughs) And it's a great joke in my family that I used to learn the flute so I can play the flute, which has taken me nowhere in life. But there you go, some (laughs) random things. I don't think I'll be incorporating that into the business. You could play your own jingle if you ever choose a new jingle one day. Yeah. (laughs) They're great. Oh, Third one, I feel like people assume that I'm a big book reader and I'm not. I don't read books. I'm all about the audio. So I do listen to audio books, but I never like pick up a book. So people often ask me to join book clubs and I'm like, I'm not a reader. (laughs) Wow. That there, that surprises me too. I think it's it's because you see like the way that we would describe it is well read because you are so well listened, maybe. Like you have so much knowledge. They assume it's from picking up a book. That's so interesting. Well, I read the paper every day, so I guess it depends how you interpret that, but I don't like pick up a book and read. I'm not up to date with like all the latest novels. Wow. But I do read the paper every day. So I'm across the news, but not not other things. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like that's like I'm missing out on life by not doing that. So I feel like maybe that's a skill I should work on, but yeah, I don't know. I'm in my 40s now. Maybe it's just yeah. not my thing. <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> Never too late to find a new yep. plate EA. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and very last question, what's your favourite quote, if you have one? Yeah, I love one that kind of can be used across the board, but I first learnt it when I was doing birth prep and it's don't push the river, it flows by itself. And I think um, that's just nice in a lot of ways for a lot of things. That's so, And we do, I think, in our generation and this day and age, push all the time we're always pushing and sometimes it is just like just just, just chill go. Go <laughs> just with it. chill out yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh Sophie thank you so much this was absolutely wonderful I love following everything you do the book is just glorious I mean look at this it has gold foiling that's very fancy yeah yeah it's fancy so fancy <laughs> congratulations <laughs> thanks so much for having me oh, it was so nice to talk Oh my gosh, I could have spoken to Sophie forever. She's just such a fountain of knowledge and there is so much to learn and understand. My goodness, women are amazing. What a perfect guest for International Women's Day. As I mentioned, even this early in our own journey, I've gained so much from reading The Complete Australian Guide to Pregnancy and Birth. It just demystifies so many of the choices and options and just things I didn't even know were options. So I highly recommend any woman hoping to have a family or any person who's hoping 
hoping to have a family to grab a copy and pour over it as I have. I'll pop the link in the show notes to the book and the podcast. And if you're a fangirl of Sophie as I am, please do share the episode and tag her at Australian Birth Stories to show your support. I know we should celebrate all that is womanly and wonderful every day, but I really do love this week of International Women's Day for reminding us to rally together and support one another. And I've already had some of the most special conversations. I hope you guys are all finding ways to acknowledge and celebrate the week and each other as well and are seizing your yay.